you have a Bible, you can open it to 1 Thessalonians. Our scripture readers, who I love dearly, said, Matthew, this is like 12 words. Can you, can you read this yourself? <laughs> I said, sure. Be glad to. But, but I have to say, I really do love the way different members of the church come up and read scripture. Just to hear a different voice proclaiming the word of God. It's good for my soul. But we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm going to begin reading in verse 19. Hear the word of the Lord, the God who speaks. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Father, that's a brief exhortation, but it's like swallowing a 40-ounce steak. (laughs) I pray that you would help us now. In so many ways, the briefer the verse, the easier it is to skip quickly. But we pray this morning that we would not skip through your word quickly, but we would walk carefully. And we would give your word the attention it is rightly due. Because when your word is speaking, you are speaking. So I pray that we would listen and receive your word with reverent, grateful hearts, open, humble minds and courage to do what you say, especially when it's uncomfortable. We are grateful, Jesus, that just as your followers felt the difficulty, the uncomfortableness of following you, that you would do the same thing today, Lord, because we don't want you to leave us comfortable. We want you to come in and change us more and more into your image, individually and corporately, So, Lord Jesus, I pray this would not be an exercise in idle education, but in transformation. Renew our minds. Sanctify our affections. Give us your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, you can probably tell if you had your Bible open, that we are nearing the end of our study of 1 Thessalonians. And I wanted you to know as we approach that, that I'm planning on, keep, just, we're just going to keep right on going and preach through 2 Thessalonians as well. Um, the reason we're going to do that before we begin a longer a series in the Gospel of John in early 2020 is that the theme of these two books is very similar. And I think that sometimes the trouble that we get into with Uh, Some of the end times sections in 2 Thessalonians in particular comes because we're not reading and understanding it in context. And so I want us to be able to go right through and carry all the context we have received because there's a shared theme here, namely living with the end in view. That's why the graphic you see occasionally says living with the end in view. There's a connection. If you were to ask my wife, Uh, she would tell you that I have a very low tolerance for suspense. 
Is anybody else with me in here? Low, low suspense, tolerance. Yeah. Yeah, I do not get people that go into these, you know, haunted houses this month and pay money to be scared. I just don't get it. That's nuts. Um, but my, my bride gets a kick out of checking my pulse when I'm watching an adventure movie. She'll just kind of lean over and put her hand right about here and chuckle because it's usually through the roof. And it's not uncommon for me, I've shared this with some of you before, to flip to the end of a novel, you know, when I'm somewhere in the beginning because all of a sudden I have this desperate urge. I, Cindy, don't shake your head. I, just the way I'm made. I have this desperate urge like, I can't enjoy the middle unless I know everybody's okay in the end. And so I read the last chapter. I'm like, oh. And then I go back and genuinely enjoy the middle. Anybody else? kind of like that, some of you. I'm weird, obviously. Okay. The gist of that is that, as I've said before, knowing the end, knowing how it all turns out, inherently changes your perspective on and gives you confidence in all the twists and turns in the middle, right? That's why we do things like that. That's why I like going back and watching Movies like The Sixth Sense, again, because now I know he's really dead. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, spoilers. Well, I'm thankful God is into spoilers. What do I mean by that? That he doesn't keep us waiting to know the end. Isn't that a gift? He doesn't keep us in suspense. There are a lot of things he doesn't tell us about what's going to happen in the future. You know, some of you are like, okay, could I, could I know? Who am I supposed to marry? Where am I supposed? No, he's he's more interested in relating with us than making our life easy. But he is into spoilers in the sense that he tells us through his word how to live today in light of what we do know about tomorrow. And so in this book, the the primary author, the Apostle Paul, repeatedly reminds us of the end. What's that? That Jesus is coming back, right? The eternal son of God who created the world will one day come back to make right everything sin has made wrong. That's the end of the story. Jesus will complete the work of cosmic restoration that he began when he walked out of the tomb on Easter morning. The firstborn from the dead. Wickedness will be punished. Righteousness will be rewarded. And the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. That's the last chapter in the story. And we know that. And so Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 6, So then, given that, let us now not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake and be sober. What's he saying? The certain hope of Christ Jesus' return in the future should make us spiritually sober right now, producing faith toward God and love toward one another, which is why Paul says in chapter 5, verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Therefore, what? Because Jesus is coming back. Therefore, given that, encourage each other. Build one another up. How do we do that? Well, verses 12 to 18, we've been lingering here at the end. Give us all kinds of examples. We respect and honor our spiritual leaders. We admonish the idle. We encourage the faint-hearted. We help the weak. We cry out for grace to be patient with all of them. 
We show our fellow Christians how to rejoice always, how to pray without ceasing, how to give thanks in all circumstances. But, but there's another critical way, friends, that we encourage and build one another up in view of the end as we are laboring on the side of glory. What's that? We diligently use and exercise the spiritual gifts that God gives us. That context is important. I'm thankful, and the more I pastor, the more my gratitude increases, that we are not alone in the work of mutual edification. We're not. God has given us a helper, Christian. He's given you a helper to keep you faithful to the end. You know who that helper's called? The Holy Spirit. Now let's get a couple things out of the, straight out of the gate, okay? The Holy Spirit is not a boogeyman. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is not the crazy uncle of the Trinity. He is equal in deity and attributes and nature with God the Father and God the Son. He's God. He's not the disseminated essence of God or the partial shadow of God or all kinds of other things we get in trouble with. He is God. He manifests God's active presence in the world because he's God. He gave life to God's creation. He gives life to God's new creation and he's the active agent of all the Lord's blessings in our lives including the spiritual gifts he gives designed to build up the church. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7? To each one is given the manifestation or the activity, the gifting, of the Spirit for the common good. So he's telling us that the Holy Spirit, through the gifts he gives, Every Christian, notice that, each one. It doesn't say pastors. Each one. He empowers Christians through those gifts he gives to edify one another in a host of different ways. So, some of the gifts he gives are more permanent. Some of the gifts he gives are more momentary. Uh, Some of the gifts he gives seem more natural. Some more remarkable. But with the exception of those among the apostles who were commissioned as eyewitnesses of Christ to write scripture, the full range of spiritual gifts remains at work in the church today. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19 to 22, Paul focuses on one of them, namely the gift of prophecy. And and he urges us here to do something. To what? To embrace the prophetic activity, the prophetic ministry of the Spirit with two things. Eager anticipation and careful discernment. The main point of the whole isn't Give a shout out to the crazy uncle. No, it is we, we should embrace the prophetic ministry of the Spirit with what? Eager anticipation, careful discernment. Now let's also say at the outset that as one of the more remarkable or manifestly supernatural spiritual gifts, 
Prophecy has often been misunderstood and sadly misused in the church. Often. And so depending on your church background, some of you are probably thrilled. He's finally speaking about this issue. Some of you are probably nervous. If I checked your pulse, your heart rate is kind of prophecy. So here's my ask, okay? Whatever your background, God clearly thinks this is important. Right? He talks about it. So listen humbly, think carefully, and don't ask God to merely affirm what you already believe. That's arrogant, right? Humility means, Lord, change my mind. Conform my thoughts to your thoughts so I can think your thoughts after you. Let's do that this morning. I have two simple points to help us understand that big idea. First, our attitude toward the Spirit's activity determines our experience of the Spirit's activity. Think about that. Our attitude toward the Spirit's activity determines, affects, influences, has a profound impact on our experience of his activity. So notice in verse 19, Paul begins with a very simple negative. Do not quench the spirits. I don't know about you, but I find that verse terribly surprising and sobering. Why? Well, throughout the Bible, the active presence of the Holy Spirit is, is symbolized by fire. So you think in Acts 2, verse 3, the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples on the day of Pentecost. And, and what does Luke say? Divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So, so if the Holy Spirit is like a fire, the command to not quench the Spirit in 1 Thessalonians 5.19 presumes What? That we have the ability, think about this, even as Christians, to restrain or suppress the activity of God. Think about that. That's stunning. Because we're talking, remember, about God Himself. Right? The the God who created the universe, who created you, who's even now giving life to your mortal bodies. He's not a weak God. He's a mighty God, a sovereign God. And yet, hear this, he has ordained in his perfect sovereignty to manifest his presence in response to the expectant faith of his people. That's not a lack of sovereignty. That is his sovereignty. So consider Acts 4, 29, where the disciples ask God, expectant faith, desire to give them a spirit of boldness that they could keep testifying to the truth of Jesus. What do we read? What do they pray? Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word, Lord, with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, they're, they're leaning in, they're, they're pressing in, they're, they're expectant, they're eager, they're desirous. The place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. 
Do you see that? Their, their attitude toward the Spirit's activity determined their experience of the Spirit's activity. Contrast that with what happened to the residents of Nazareth in Mark 6, verse 5, speaking of Jesus, and he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Now, we've got to be careful here, okay? Do we ultimately control what the Holy Spirit does or doesn't do? No. Why not? Because you're not sovereign. <laughs> and I'm not sovereign. Only God is sovereign. But does the Holy Spirit work and move in proportion to the desire in our hearts for him to work and move? Yes. Yes. He does not act in us or through us contrary to our will. He will change our will, but it doesn't act contrary to our will. He's as it were, a gentleman. Which begs the question, exactly how then do we quench the spirit? Do we resist or, or suppress his activity? Well, there are many ways, but Paul tells us in verse 20, shows us in verse 20, he's got one in view in a big way here. Verse 20, do not despise prophecies. So how do we Make sure that we are not resisting or suppressing the activity of the Spirit of God. Well, one big way, we take care that we are not despising prophecies and in so doing, quenching the Spirit. But in order for any of that to make sense, I feel this in a moment like this, we need to slow down and think about what in the world is prophecy? <laughs> Right? What, what in the world is prophecy? So, so let's, let's take some time here to review what the Bible means by prophecy. All right? So in the Old Testament, a prophet was what? More or less a divine messenger appointed by God to speak or prophesy the words of God. A divine messenger appointed by God to speak or prophesy the very words of God. 2 Samuel 12, 25, the Lord sent a message by Nathan the prophet. Jeremiah 1.9, the Lord says to the prophet Jeremiah, behold, I have put my words in your mouth such that what the prophet says, God says. It's why prophets like Jeremiah or Isaiah were, were able to write scripture. God inspired their speech. He put his very words in their mouth such that their words were God's words. And they carried their words, his absolute authority. And so the Lord instructs Israel very clearly in Deuteronomy 18, 19, whoever will not listen to my words that the prophet shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Why is that? Because to disobey a prophet was to disobey God himself. Why? Because the word of God delivered through the prophet was perfect. That's why. And the, and the apostles, if we fast forward to the New Testament, they exercised a very similar kind of authority in their teaching and writing. So the Lord empowered them to speak exactly what he wanted them to speak, just like the prophets who came before them. But on the day of Pentecost, in Acts 2, prophecy changed. 
A lot of things changed. But prophecy changed. When the ascended Christ poured out the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit in new covenant measure, the gift of prophecy was no longer confined to a select, limited group. All of God's people were filled with the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit with spiritual gifts, including in many cases, the gift of prophecy. And when the distribution of the prophetic gift changed, the nature of the gift changed too. That's really important. So where do we see that? How do you know that's not just, well, another guy who's got his thoughts on prophecy. Well, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, a couple chapters earlier, notice Paul thanks God that when the Thessalonians, quote, received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Which is at work in you believers. C- clearly, what do we take away from that? The Thessalonians had no problem with despising or disdaining the word of God. Paul held them up as an example of accepting and embracing the word of God. So, the fact that he says to the same people three chapters later, do not despise prophecy, don't despise prophecy, strongly suggests what? That prophecies are not the same thing as the word of God. And in fact, when we we examine Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, especially chapters 12 to 14, we discover exactly that, a clear distinction, hear this, clear distinction between the apostolic word and a prophetic word in the form of a command to the Corinthians to use the apostolic word, the words of scripture, to test and evaluate the prophetic word. They're different things. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 37 If anyone thinks that he is a prophet, there were a lot of self-appointed prophets in Corinth, by the way, or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you, says Paul, are a command from the Lord. If anyone, including all those prophets, doesn't recognize this, I don't recognize him. He's not recognized because they're different things. They don't carry the same authority. So, If prophecy in the New Testament, apart from the apostolic writings, isn't the authoritative word of God, thus says the Lord, like it was in the Old Testament, well then what is it? (laughs) All I've done thus far is try to make clear what it's not, right? So what is it then? What is it? Well, a prophecy is simply a report of a spontaneous revelation from God. Or as Wayne Grudem says, I like, I like this, I think it's helpful. Prophecy is speaking merely human words to report something God has brought to mind. And Paul's instruction to the church in, in Corinth, especially chapter 14, is probably the single most helpful chapter in the Bible for kind of getting our heads around what that looks like and what that is. So, in 1 Corinthians 14, 3, Paul explains the purpose of the gift. What's the purpose? The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Translation, 
like every other spiritual gift, generosity, mercy, administration, all kinds of other gifts, what is the goal of prophecy? What's the purpose of that gift? Not to draw attention to the prophet, but to build up the body of Christ. Not to create a spectacle, to build up the body of Christ. Not to make people think, whoo, there goes a prophet. No, there goes Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 14, 29, staying in the same chapter, Paul explains the source of the gift. So if that's the purpose, what's the source? Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation, notice that word, is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. Do you know what you will never find in the Old Testament? You will never find God instructing his people to interrupt a prophet. You don't, and you won't, and you wouldn't. Why not? A direct command from the Lord to interrupt a prophet when they're speaking. Don't, why does the Lord never tell us to do that in the Old Testament? Because they were speaking the very words of God. You don't interrupt God ever. And God himself certainly doesn't command his people to interrupt him, ever. Clearly, the spiritual gift of prophecy today has to be something different then. So I'd summarize it this way. Today, prophecy is not an objective declaration of divine inspiration. It is a subjective report of divine revelation. A spiritual impression from the Lord that will be understood imperfectly and communicated imperfectly and yet through the help of the Spirit done faithfully and truthfully. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When is that? When the Bible was done being written? No. If you read the next verse in that chapter, it is when Jesus returns. When we see him face to face. And until then, how does the Holy Spirit help us? How does he equip us to build one another up? Remember, that's the whole context in view of the end. We want to encourage and build each other up. How does he do that? Well, first and foremost, he encourages us and builds us up through his holy word, right? May that be given primacy in all our edification. And yet, he also helps us by encouraging, consoling, building us up through the gift of prophecy, as I've just described, by which God does what? He reminds us that he sees you. He knows you. He cares for you. And Paul gives us a, a beautiful description of what, how that goes down in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 24. Listen, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. Notice, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. 
Friends, if this whole idea of prophecy is just a radically new concept for you, let me just illustrate a bit from my own experience here. Because what Paul just described there in verse 24, that's been my consistent experience. Uh, Whether I'm talking about a a prophetic word, prophetic impression that someone shared here on a Sunday morning when they came down to the ministry mic or when the Lord gave someone a prophetic word or impression to share with me personally, my consistent experience has been when that happens, I'm aware of this. Lord, you know what I'm going through. Right? You know. And you know so well and you care for me so much that you revealed part of that to one of my brothers or sisters so they could speak into my life and address things that they couldn't know apart from you revealing it to them. And because of that, I'm freshly aware that you see me, that you know my heart, that you care for me, you know what I'm going through. And, and, and that's what we experience. For example, when someone says, Just think of different things you've maybe heard here on a Sunday morning at the microphone. I believe there are people here today who are ashamed because of their sexual sin. I think the Lord wants to remind you that he knows what you've done, that he's eager to forgive and cleanse you from that sin if you're willing to repent today. It's like God sees. Wow, he knows. Or or maybe you've heard someone say something like this. "The, The Lord put on my heart a group of folks who feel incapable of loving someone in your family. You feel stuck. You feel trapped. But, but I believe the Lord would say, consider the work my son did for you. Remember that when you had no hope of restoring your relationship with me, I moved. I worked. I intervened supernaturally on your behalf. You may not know what the future holds for this relationship, But my son, my daughter, you know me. So trust me, knowing that what is impossible with man is possible with God. Was I quoting something I've heard recently? No, but but those are examples of how the Lord, through a gift of prophecy, a revelation, a report of that revelation, reminds us that he sees, that he knows, that he cares for us. So could you argue I'm going to play devil's advocate here right now, okay? Because I'd like to do this in my own mind. Well, it's probably always a safe bet in a gathering of this size that someone is struggling with sexual sin and someone is struggling with loving people who are hard to love. So the odds of hitting the bullseye are, I don't know, 100 out of 100? Prophecy. Revelation from God. Right. That just makes sense to human reason. Well... On one level, that's true. It is a safe bet. But but hear this. It's the revelatory element. The supernatural insight into the specific needs of the moment and the corresponding work that the Holy Spirit wants to do in that moment, in our hearts, that distinguishes the gift of prophecy from the gift of teaching. There's an in-the-moment nature to prophecy. A, a revelation character whereby God is addressing what's going on right now. There's a timeliness to it. So if prophecy is a report of something God spontaneously brings to mind to build up the church, what does it mean to despise prophecy? 
Here we're kind of getting back on the main line with Paul and Thessalonians. So think about this. To despise prophecy is to have an attitude toward prophecy that minimizes or rejects its value or worth such that we effectively, by our attitude, quench the activity of the Spirit in our lives and the people around us. Why? Because the main point, our attitude toward the activity of God's Spirit, right, determines, affects our experience of the activity of God's Spirit. So we do that, we despise prophecy, when we fail to earnestly desire the gift because it makes us a little uncomfortable. Because we don't feel in control. And all of us white type A teacher, it all must be done decently and in order Presbyterian types. (laughs) I'm not sure I like this. Or roller coasters. We do that. We despise prophecy. Think about this. When the Lord gives us a prophetic word, but our fear of getting it wrong keeps us silent. We do that, despise prophecy, when it's not because we're afraid of getting it wrong, we're just silent because we're afraid of people. And I don't want to look like a wacko. So I'll let somebody else look like a wacko. And if they want to take the risk of being used by God, I'm happy to just kind of follow along and reap the benefits. Selfish. We do that, we despise prophecy, when we hear a prophetic word and don't consider what God might be saying to us through it. Oh, here goes Will Hagen yapping at the mic. When can we get back to singing? I sure hope there's a hymn coming up next. <laughs> Never. You know, I'm going to, now I have to poke at myself, right? That's the way it works when you're on stage. When we, we despise prophecy when we fail to make room in a corporate gathering of the church, whether large or small for the people of God to use the spiritual gifts God has given us. Because we got an agenda. And clearly, what is planned is more godly than what is spontaneous. To which all my charismatic brothers and sisters would say, no, 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 it is what is spontaneous that we long for and God doesn't move through what's planned. (laughs) Really? How about both? In other words, look back at the chapter. You want to know how we do verse 19? It's by doing verse 20. We quench the spirit. We resist or hinder his activity in our midst by despising prophecy, by neither seeking, valuing, or making room for the spirit's activity through the gifts he gives, especially the gift of prophecy. So the application of these two verses to our lives is very simple. Listen, if we want to enjoy the spirit's activity, his upbuilding, his encouragement, and and consolation through prophecy, then we need to have an attitude that eagerly anticipates his activity and earnestly desires his activity. That's the bottom line. We we need to gather as the people of God with an expectant heart of faith, right? Asking the Lord to speak to us and through us. We need to ask God for help to listen to the Spirit's voice. We need to repent of the unbelief that would conclude God will never use me to prophesy because he has not yet used me to prophesy. 
And we need to cry out to the Lord for courage, holy courage, to share the revelations or impressions he gives us, remembering that God will use what? Imperfect vessels, speaking imperfect words to accomplish his perfect work. It's the kind of God he is. Our attitude toward the Spirit's activity determines our experience of of his activity. That's the whole point of verses 19 and 20. Now, let's look at 21 and 22. Point number two, experiencing the Spirit's activity requires discerning the Spirit's activity. Okay? So don't lose the connection. If we want to experience his activity, we have to have what? An attitude of eager expectation and desire. Absent that, we're quenching. But if we want to experience that activity we so desire, especially through prophecy, there's something else we have to have, and that's what? Careful discernment. So one of the reasons, I've alluded to this earlier, many Christians in evangelical churches are reluctant to earnestly desire or make room for the gift of prophecy is the host of ways in which it has been misused. So to stand before a church... I'm going to step on some toes here and say, thus saith the Lord, followed by anything but the written word of God is both. No, it's not both. It's just foolish. I was going to say it's dangerous. It's not. It's foolish. It's arrogant. It's presumptive. It's confusing. You don't need to do that. Why? Because it creates confusion. And it causes people to lose sight of the critical distinction between the the normative role of God's perfect word and the upbuilding, encouraging, consoling role of our imperfect prophecies. And the difference between thus says the Lord and I believe the Lord gave me a word for you is not mere semantics. Oh, well, that's my introductory phrase to qualify to talk at the mic. Nonsense. I didn't say that. It's not semantics. It's humility. It's humility. Church history is replete with men and women who have gone off the rails spiritually because they ascribed an authority to a revelation they had or someone else had for them that should have been reserved for the word of God alone. It's, it's like driving down a highway after a hurricane and a flood and there's just cars everywhere. That, that's what church history looks like on this issue. But please hear this, friends, okay? Especially... Presbyterian reform types. Please hear this. The alternative biblically to abuse is not disuse. The alternative to abuse of God's good gift is never disuse. Think about it. Does the fact we can hurt one another through our words mean you should never speak again? No. Does the fact that we can use our money in arrogant or selfish ways mean we should never spend again? 
No. Does the fact that we can hurt each other with our sexual activity mean we should never have sex again? No. No, the alternative biblically to abuse is not disuse. All of God's gifts can be readily abused, but we don't reject a gift because it's been abused or restrict our pursuit of a gift because we're afraid it could be misused. Why? Because to despise prophecy is to despise the God from whom it originates. And so the guiding principle, the guiding principle in our our attitude toward and our exercise of all the spiritual gifts God gives, especially prophecy, has to be what? Faith toward God and love toward one another. And listen, if there ever was a church that was off the rails on the use of this gift, it was the church in Corinth. If there ever was a church where Paul could have been justified and said, you know what, just pull the plug. I'll come back in three years and maybe then you can try prophecy again. Because you're a mess. Well, they were, but Paul doesn't do that. What, What does he do? What does he do? Look back at verse 21, 22. Don't quench the spirit, don't despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Or you could also translate that every evil kind. Don't lift verse 22 out of context here. Test everything, what? Prophecies. Hold fast to what is good, the good kind. Reject every evil form. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. Well, here are the others. Who are the others who are supposed to evaluate the prophecy after it's been shared? Well, it's just the pastor because, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know my Bible. So he just needs to tell me what I should listen to and what not. Okay, this way, that way. Is that good? All right, I'll got. No. Look back at verse 21. Who's Paul writing to here? The whole congregation. All of you. Every one of you. Test everything. That's not just my responsibility. That's, that's yours. And if, so if you hear a prophecy or someone shares a prophetic word with you, you need to evaluate two things. Okay. Very simply first evaluate the content of the word. Evaluate the content. Does it affirm what scripture affirms and deny what scripture denies? If so, This isn't rocket science. Hold fast to it as good. If not, reject it or at least that part of it as evil. 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. We need to evaluate everything in light of the perfect word of God, the written word of God. No matter how spiritual or right the person talking to you claims to be. Evaluate the content. Second, evaluate the purpose of the word. Purpose of the word. In other words, tone matters as much as content in whether God's heart is being accurately communicated toward his people. So we ask, is the prophecy shared in a way that builds up and encourages and consoles those who listen? Or is it delivered with with arrogance, with presumption, or or a super spiritual air and flourish and bravado that leaves you strangely more aware of the person than Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean every prophetic word 
will make you feel good about yourself. Right? So don't, don't come to me and say, I didn't feel particularly loved on by that. I felt convicted. I felt like God was getting my business. I felt, oh my word, the secrets of my heart were being disclosed. Well, yeah. Because <laughs> that's what it is. That's the point, right? Conviction's a gift from God and it'll build you up if you respond to it humbly. I, I love how Gordon Fee puts these two things together. Our corporate responsibility, listen. Because such utterances are from the Holy Spirit, they must not be despised. But also because such utterances come through merely human vessels, they must be tested. So experiencing the Spirit's activity requires discerning the Spirit's activity. And and as we just prepare to wrap up here, let me give you two ways I think we easily go wrong in our testing or in our discerning, okay? First, we can think that a prophetic word isn't valid unless it's accompanied by a red portion of Scripture. Paul never says that, and nor should we require it. When you're listening to a word of prophecy, you shouldn't think, Uncomfortable, uncomfortable, uncomfortable. Oh, and they read the Bible. Okay. No, no. If you're sharing a prophetic word or impression, do not think you have to read a scripture as part of what you share to validate what you share. If if a particular portion of scripture is laid on your heart by God as part of the revelation or impression that he gives you to share with his people, by all means, read it. Just know that reading scripture along with sharing a word of prophecy doesn't make the prophecy more biblical. Second, we can test a prophetic word with something other than scripture. Think about this. And I want to specifically address those of you coming from a more Pentecostal background here. We can say, when that person spoke, I felt chills down my spine. When that person spoke, I I just felt God's arms wrapping me in love. Now, can biblical prophetic ministry have physical and emotional effects? Yes. Imagine that. The God who created the whole person addresses the whole person. Stunning. It can. It does. But physical or emotional impacts don't make a prophecy biblical. Does it correspond to the written word is what makes it biblical. And finally, please notice, please notice this, that the same people that are told to not quench the spirit and not despise prophecies are the same people that are told to test everything. It it is really unfortunate how in the church, even even a church like ours, it's easy to split into two camps. You've, You've got the charismatic types waving the Pentecostal flag saying, don't quench the spirit, repeat, don't quench the spirit, yeah, don't, you know. And then, and then you have the uh, reform types. I went to a Southern Baptist seminary, so I'm laughing at myself here. You know, test everything. Get a little worried. Ready? Decently and in order, decently, you know, and that's kind of how it goes, Right? Friends, the Lord doesn't give some of us the responsibility of earnestly desiring spiritual gifts. And the rest of us, the responsibility of testing everything. 
If you are a Christian, God has given you, all of us, the collective responsibility to earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that we may prophesy, and all of us to test everything. You don't get to pick. All of us, regardless of church background or preference, need to embrace the prophetic ministry of the Spirit with eager anticipation and careful discernment. And and let me say this. To those of you who faithfully serve our church, at least in this corporate context, with the gift of prophecy, thank you for what you do. But I'm not mainly speaking to you right now. And the point of this message is not primarily to make all the rest of you all more grateful for what they do. The point of this sermon is to make sure we are hearing from God what Paul, Lord through Paul, said to the Thessalonians, that it's all of our responsibility to make sure we're not quenching the spirit, despising prophecies, and testing everything. But if you are using that gift and God's given you that gift in a particular way, then take comfort in the fact that God's also told the people you're talking to to test you. Do you know what a comfort that is? You don't have to, in other words, agonize for hours Okay, Lord, um, is that article, did you want me to use the adverb there? No. No, they're they're supposed to test it anyway. So speak with courage and humble freedom, knowing your goal is not to be a more perfect prophet. Your goal is to be faithful and to trust God through his spirit to help us both speak faithfully and test faithfully. My greatest concern for our congregation right now, to be frank, and I've been very frank today, is not a failure to rightly test prophecies. That could change. And I could come up here and give a very different sermon in 10 years, and I will if needed. But my greatest concern is that many of us might, A, count ourselves out of being used by God to share a prophetic word or impression because it's never happened in our lives before. And B, please hear this, adopt a great if it happens, fine if it doesn't, attitude toward prophecy that effectively quenches the spirit for lack of earnest desire in our hearts. Spiritual gifts are not optional, friends. They're not on a menu item of Christian possibilities God asks you to order from. They're absolutely essential if we're going to keep growing and bearing fruit as a church, both individually and corporately. We cannot accomplish our gospel mission without them. We won't help people grow, enjoy growing relationship with God without them. God knows what we need. He has not given us superfluous gifts. He's given us mission-critical gifts, including the gift of prophecy. And I don't know a single Christian who would say, I think rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and giving thanks in all circumstances was only something God wanted the church to do in the first century, so I am done with that joy stuff. So why, if we don't say that about verses 16 to 18, do we quickly conclude that must be true in verses 19 to 22? The the entire sequence of imperatives at the conclusion of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians is just as relevant today for us as it all was for them. 
So the biblical attitude towards spiritual gifts is a far cry from open but cautious. Far cry. Because when it comes to prophecy, that the path that God has called us to walk is marked by eager anticipation and, and careful discernment. So may the Lord make us that kind of people, church, who earnestly desire, celebrate the gift of prophecy, so that, that gathering after gathering, both small and large, we would collectively with our non-Christian friends come face to face with the fact God is surely among us. I urge you, brothers and sisters, pursue love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this has been a bit of an exercise in hooking our mind up to a fire hydrant. (laughs) But I pray that you would use this sermon, Lord, if for nothing else, than to cause us to ask new questions. Give us humility that does not confine the ways you use us to what is comfortable or historical. We want you to use us however you want to use us. And Lord, I pray right now as we sing and ask you to fill us more with your spirit that you would pour out spiritual gifts in this church. Lord, I pray as we gather later this month, the 20th, to to focus, to pray Sunday night for an outpouring of spiritual gifts that you would pour them out on this church. But we don't want that because we want to be super spiritual. We don't want that because we want to be some sort of tier two Christian. We want that because we want you. And we believe you when you say that you love us so much that you're faithful to give gifts from the risen Christ to build up the body of Christ. Lord, use us as you want. Spirit of God, empower and help us, I pray. In your name, amen.